This episode is sponsored by Kangaroo Jack Fitness, personal training that goes above and beyond to get the best results for you. If you're an MMA fan, be sure to check out the new Switchkick podcast. We preview upcoming events, discuss the big UFC and Bellator news, and John from Philadelphia drops in to give us a few betting tips. To listen, search for Switchkick MMA on SoundCloud or Switchkick in the Apple Store. Ah, uh, I've just started The Apprentice back. game time it's just me and Danny this week uh, we've got the rare occurrence of covering some odd uh, midweek Premier League fixtures we've also got some talk about the Ballon d'Or and best sort of stats of players as we come up to the January transfer window uh, now Danny we're going to kick it off uh, you haven't had much of a chance to talk about Manchester United uh, on the podcast recently so I'll let you you got free reign uh, a two-all draw against Arsenal oh what a game it ended up being and, I, and I'll give a shout out to Alan, who said it would be 2-2. So, <laughs> although he's busy at work this week, he's, uh, he's got that spot on. And you know what? It was, it was a really interesting game. It perfectly conformed to all of the stereotypes that Manchester United and Arsenal have had this season. Arsenal still haven't led a game at half-time. Arsenal have still scored the most goals in the second half. And Manchester United seem to play better when they go behind. <laughs> typical, uh, typical stuff. I mean, you know, Mourinho definitely seems to be experimenting with uh, with formations and players here a bit. Obviously, it's the midweek game, so you know, it, players need resting, uh, especially having had you know all the midweek games from Champions League uh, recently. But he's sort of he's going with three at the back. I mean, at the weekend he played like sort of Matic and McTominay in defence. Now he's got Marcus Rojo back in, Diego Delot and uh, Damian's back, and he's playing with two strikers. I mean, is it working? 10, 15 minutes, United really didn't give Arsenal any space. They were pressing really high up the pitch. They looked really, really good. And I thought, you know what? He, he dropped Pogba. He decided not to, to start with Pogba. And United looked a lot more dynamic because there has been, over the last few months, criticism of Pogba that he slows the game down a little bit too much in midfield. Dilly dallies on the ball. But United came out of the blocks quick, but then didn't really do anything with that pressure on Arsenal built into the first half but in in the end United just shot themselves in the foot with two mistakes and Arsenal pretty much did the same first Arsenal goal was a really rare mistake from David De Gea uh, Mustafi just sort of nodded the ball down into the ground and it was quite a wet evening and it just slipped out of De Gea's hands and then just seemed to float into the air and for some reason Ander Herrera was stuck in slow motion and didn't clear it off the line in time and then United, just a few minutes later, Marcos Rojo, who you mentioned back in the starting lineup for the first time in a while after injury, took a free kick. It was well saved. Hint of offside from Ander Herrera, maybe. He hooked it back across. None of the Arsenal defenders wanted to defend it. And then Martial rifled it in on his birthday as well. So he's, <laughs> he's in decent form. But it was a weird one because in the end, Marcos Rojo, who looked like he was having a pretty decent game, ended up making the mistake to make it 2-1 to Arsenal, giving the ball away in the second half. And then, like, 
20 seconds later, Manchester United had equalised from kickoff like it was a game of FIFA. So <laughs> it, it was a really odd game to watch. And a draw might have been the fair result. Arsenal had a, a few chances towards the end. But yeah, you know what? United didn't look terrible. And, and that's An saying something. Yes, that's saying something for them this season. Uh, Diogo Delot, he's not made too many appearances. I think he's been injured a lot. Looked okay down the right-hand side. The Arsenal really did target him because the amount of times Kalasanak got in behind him and maybe if his delivery had been a little bit better, Arsenal would have had a few more chances. But, you know, on the whole, United haven't won in four games, so it's not good, but they'll probably take a point against Arsenal in the grand scheme of things and, and Arsenal now 20 games unbeaten. So a mental, a mental game of football. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about how sort of well Arsenal have been doing, especially transitioning from Wenger, but... Um with sort of Lacazette and Aubameyang both, you know, playing well. Um, they've, well, they, they've technically dropped to fifth, but um, Man United have now dropped to eighth behind Bournemouth. Um, yeah. Is there still a lot of work to be done at United or is this like sort of the start, you think, of their, their comeback? Tom was very happy in telling me this morning that uh, Bournemouth <laughs> were ahead of Manchester United. Um, no, I, I don't think it's going to get better. I don't think Manchester United are going to go on a 7-8, a win streak and and start clambering back up into the top four. I don't see it happening. There's just too much unrest. The January transfer window may actually end up being more of a hindrance to United than a help, but that remains to be seen. I I don't see United doing anything grand. I'd imagine they're going to be here for the most part of the season. I wouldn't see them breaking into that top four, just purely because the quality of the teams in that top four are far and beyond better than how United are currently playing. And especially after the Southampton game, I think Mourinho called Pogba a virus, chose to leave him out against Arsenal. It's, it's a bit of a... I mean, we've been through it enough. It's a bit of a mayhem at Manchester United at the moment. But that said, they played very, very well in portions of that game against Arsenal and really had the crowd behind them for the first time in a while at Old Trafford. So... That was at least a positive note. I'm really intrigued to see what they're going to do in January with Pogba and Mourinho. I mean, if he's called him a virus, um, it's not, you know, it's that's not a relationship that I'd want to keep. Well, I'd want, I'd want to be in. I think, like, you know, Pogba, one of your star players, um, like, if he's, you know, he might, he might want to go. He might want to stay at United. United might want to keep him and let Mourinho go. I mean, it's very intriguing. But um, the predictions now, a month away, what do you think is going to happen? I'm not really in a position to say because I, I don't really know the inner workings of the club. But I, to be honest, I can't imagine anything's going to change. It's not the first time Mourinho has called someone a virus. <laughs> uh, he's done it countless times over his career. It, it's not the first time he's fallen out with a player, even whilst at Manchester United. He's dug enough players out this season alone. So I honestly don't see anything happening drastically because honestly, United have just handed Mourinho a new contract. So something... Unless something re- unless they lose the next three games before Christmas and then a couple after that, I can't see either of them going anywhere. It's all just random chit chat, to be honest. I I don't really know too much. I'd imagine it'd stay the same till past January. What about you? I mean, there's always at the transfer window. There's always rumours circulating about Manchester United, and it's normally always Manchester United at the forefront of it. Um, and you always see those memes of like waiting for deals to be done. This is pitch the skeletons at the window. Um, <laughs> it's like when you see Gareth Bale's car arriving or something, and this is a skeleton like at the window. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, 
I, I would probably say Mourinho is in more of a threat than Pogba at the moment just because of the place Manchester United are. But then if, you know, if Pogba's not playing and they're, they're actually getting results, um, then, you know, maybe they just stick with it and see what happens. Um, I, think the, I think December might be really crucial for Manchester United uh, just to see how they've got. You've got Liverpool coming up in two weeks' time and then a must-win at home against Fulham mm. uh, next week or at the weekend even. Um, I'm forgetting that we're halfway through the you know midweek games. Um, I was going to say one thing that I did want to mention on the Arsenal front of things. Unai Emery has been really good with substitutions this season. A, a lot of the times when he's decided to change something, it's worked. And he bought on Lacazette in the second half, and, and Lacazette scored. I can't remember if it went down as a a Lacazette goal, goal or a Rojo own goal in the end, but he made an impact. And I think. And I don't want to be critical, but Arsenal were very unfortunate in getting two injuries in the first half to Aaron Ramsey and Rob Holding, which took away two of Emery's substitutions straight off the bat. And I wonder if the match would have gone a different way if Emery hadn't been forced into making changes in the first half and, and the beginning of the second half, because he's been so good with subs in changing games that maybe they could have had United on the ropes because towards the latter part of that game, United were hanging on. Nikitarin had a goal disallowed for offside and De Gea had to make a couple of good saves. So that's one thing that I feel give Arsenal credit for because they got injuries and, and normally Emery is very, very good at making changes. So credit to them for getting a draw away from home when it looks like Rob Holding's going to be out for, for quite a while because it's a, a bit of an awkward land on his knee. And, and I'm not too sure about Aaron Ramsey, but he wasn't looking too fit either. Do you think that's just really good tactics and football knowledge from uh, Emery? Do you think that's like good man management and the players wanting to play for him? Like, or is it just that, like, you know, the Arsenal players seem to be just performing much better than they have been? I, I think it's probably a credit to him as a manager because I think a lot of managers get criticised for not making changes at the right time or not making changes at all. I know a lot of people were quite critical of Gareth Southgate at the World Cup, that he's very conservative or was very conservative during the World Cup in making any changes. Like It's almost like as soon as that clock hit 65 minutes, the subs would start warming up and, and they'd go out. He never looked like he wanted to change something. And, and that's not just a dig at Southgate. That's a, a lot of managers sometimes are scared to change things. But Emery doesn't look like he is afraid to change things and has seemed to reap the benefits of making good changes. That being said, Mourinho's never afraid to make a change and play a centre-defensive midfielder at centre-back and substitute <laughs> Eric Bailly, who was very good last night uh, against Arsenal, from 19 minutes of play last time we saw him in the Premier League. So, yeah, it's uh, well played on, on Emery. I think he's, he's done a very, very good job at Arsenal and I would not be surprised if they were in and around that top four at the end of the season. No, I mean, they are four goal difference off Chelsea, who are fourth. And, like, it is, as much as... You know, people have, have had their reservations about Arsenal, as they do with every club, to be honest. Um, it is nice to see them back, you know, challenging. And we've got a really competitive top five at the moment in the Premier League. And it's actually genuinely exciting to see because it's all mixing and matching. Um, now, obviously, Man City at the top on 41 points. Um, not, uh, not a breeze, uh, as they have been doing against Watford. They won 2-1 away, but... Uh, you know, we're used to seeing them win four or five minutes at this point and scoring tons of goals and making it look easy. Um, did Watford put up a good challenge? Yeah, you know what? Watford were good value for their money because they, they hadn't been on the greatest run of form. And yeah, granted, they've still lost, but 
they they gave it a, a good go, but City they're they're so good, and <laughs> we've mentioned it we've mentioned it enough, and, and it pains me to say, but they're so so good. Riyad Mahrez looks like he's just slipped into that team so easily. People forget that he costs fifty million pounds now because he he's doing the business for them, an assist and a goal yesterday, and I think my favourite part of that match as well was just uh, Abdoulaye Decoré's celebration. I'm not sure if you saw it. So the, he scored the scrappiest goal in the world. He was basically like three yards out from goal and needed about four attempts before he bundled it in. And it wasn't like a look of joy. It was just a look of relief because I've never seen a man <laughs> shit himself more in front of goal. He lo- looked every bit of the centre defensive midfielder he is going, oh no, I've got, I've got to finish this. And he just about bundled it in. But now Watford, good, good value for their money. I mean, City were still very, very good, but yeah, 2-1 shows that Watford were challenging. Granted, Ben Foster kept them in it quite a lot. But, hey, you take what you get against City because on their day, we've seen it before, they can put five or six past you. Yeah, I mean, else without Aguero and De Bruyne, I mean, the depth of that, that team is just scary. Um, we don't really need to talk about Manchester City that much because we just know how good they are. But um, So do you think that, that coming up against Man City inspires teams? I mean, they are, they are the best team. I don't think anyone would have any doubts of me saying that they're the best team with the best players uh, in the Premier League at the moment. Do you think they're almost, they can almost be like a starting block for teams that aren't on a great run of form? Uh, that come up against Man City think, oh, you're right, they're the best team. We're going to get inspired. We're going to go at them or you know, play really good football. Um, do you think like, it actually can be a starting block for teams? Or do you think that you come up against them and you can just get completely run down and you know that's all your hope for the season gone? I'll tell you what, if any team in bad runner form comes up against Manchester City and thinks, this is a starting block, let's go from here, they must be either stupid or have the best confidence in the world. <laughs> because I, I, if I had to play against that Manchester City team as a, as a Premier League footballer, I would be bricking it. They just... They, <laughs> They look insane at all times. And there's, there's chat amongst pundits who are like, oh, you can, you can have a go at City here and you can have a go at City there. But, but you can't. It, tends, it tends to me you can have a go at them for like one minute of a game. And if you don't score that one chance that they potentially might give you, that's it. They'll just shut the door for the rest of it. And I, I think it's, it's really good to have a team like City in the league because it really shows you that football can be so beautiful when played a certain way. Uh, but I don't think any team will will want to relish coming up against the likes of Sane, who seems to be on form, Sterling, who's banging goals in and is nominated and most likely will win player of the month this season in the Premier League, Aguero when he's on the pitch. And there's so many more players that I could name. But yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. What do you think? Do you think teams want to play City? Or do you think they just can't be asked? I don't think anyone wants to play City. I think that, like, if just by chance, if the stars align, I think there is the opportunity. Like, sort of Wolves showed it really early on in the season, and it was really early on in the season. But, like, they got a draw out of it and did sort of... They had a really good run of form off the back of it. Um, you know, I, gen- I think that maybe if the City are a tiny bit off par, I think there is that slight opportunity you can potentially go at them and grind a result even if it is a draw that's a point picked up that you know you wouldn't have done otherwise and not many other teams will so I think potentially um and like I think just for off-pitch things as well I think if you go 
if you Man City come to your ground and you put up a really good fight against them, I think it can really inspire your fans to think, oh, you know, we're actually playing really well against the best team in the league and we're going to support our team a bit more. Like, if a team like Newcastle went there, who have clearly had issues with um, the club and with the owner, not necessarily the players, but, like, I think that's the sort of thing that could really inspire a team. Only if they do well. If they play rubbish, then it's going to get even worse. Um, but I just think it's, it's the kind of thing that could and has potential to, you know, make you kick on a little bit. Yeah, there's always that potential to kick on, especially if you beat a team like C. Like taking cocaine, I'd imagine. You feel euphoric. <laughs> Again, do, I'm not. I'm not saying we don't endorse that. No way. In no way am I saying take drugs unless it's Lemsip, which I'm absolutely. <laughs> I'm not. I am. We're not going to go any further. But I'm taking a lot of Lemsip. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's a potential there, but I, I don't I don't see any side beating City for for a long time, if at all, this season. I mean, you got best thing to do is look at how Leon coped with them in the Champions League and do that. <laughs> and, and, and if you can do that then fair play no you are right most of the time uh, the only Premier League the closest you can get to uh, having a go at City is sort of walking up to Edison and having a go at his haircut um, <laughs> we'll move on from that uh, as a Chelsea fan this pains me to say it, but uh, Wolves won, winning 2-1 uh, at home against Chelsea just another really poor performance from the Blues uh, and then a great result for the Wolves side that you know, have dropped a little bit of recent and do need these results. Um, what did you make of the match, first off? I mean, it's, it's unfortunate from Chelsea because they absolutely dominated the game, but just could not finish. I mean, Ruben Loftus-Cheek's goal was in itself very lucky because Connor Cody pretty much bulleted it into the bottom corner on the way through. And, and I, I mean, Chelsea dominated possession, as you'd imagine they would, had more shots, but you know, sometimes you just, it's unfortunate to say, sometimes you just have an off day and you can't put the ball in the back of the net. And unfortunately for Chelsea, that's what happened. And, and Wolves took their chances very well. Uh, Raul Jimenez, who's, who's become a little bit of a cult legend at Molyneux because he seems to be doing the business. Hadn't scored in a few games, but did score here today. And then Diego Jota, who I had in my fantasy team for about three weeks because I thought he was going to be really good because he looked so good in the championship. And didn't quite do it, but he scored a really, a really good goal. Man City esque goal as it got whipped across the face of goal for Yotta to just tap the ball in at the back post. So, yeah, in one of those games that, on paper, you look at the stats and go Chelsea had seventy percent possession, and seventeen shots, a game they should win. But as we all know, football isn't played on paper. And if you can find a more generic statement than that on this podcast, <laughs> I will applaud you. <laughs> football is the beautiful game. Um... <laughs> No, I mean, you say it's 17 shots. There were only three shots on target to Wolves 2. They scored from both of theirs and we only scored one. Um, it's just get, it's getting to crisis now where, like, the entire team is reliant on Eden Hazard and he gets, like, quadruple teamed in defence, meaning that he can't do anything. But our rest of attacking players aren't good enough, meaning that the space they have is completely pointless because they then can't create or score from it. Um, Maratta is just I don't know what's gone on with him like it's so difficult he went from sort of you know playing from Madrid and Juventus in Champions League finals and actually producing to just looking the most nervous in front of goal I've ever seen anyone apart from Decore um, <laughs> and then William who 
I have mixed feelings about purely because of that one season where we were absolute trash and he played quite well in comparison. But this season, he's been so atrocious. And for some reason, he gets starts over Pedro, who admittedly is a year older than him, but it just immediately has more impact on the game. William does some step-overs, passes it to the other team's centre-back, and then they go on a counter-attack, and then doesn't track back. Um, it's ridiculous. When we've got players like Giroud on the bench, who clearly gets the best out of Hazard, because he's when Giroud's been on the pitch, that's when Hazard scored all of his goals. And then... Uh, a young player like Callum Hudson-Odoi, who I have mentioned several times, and if you're a Chelsea mm. fan, you know what I mean, um, who is 18 and dominated the youth leagues. And when he's he scored uh, in the Europa League as well and actually shows promise, flair and attacking intentions, as opposed to the rest of our wingers, who he is like half the age of, who genuinely just can't produce the goods. I think, why? what's the point? I'm very happy that Ruben Loftus-Cheek is actually getting a go because... You know, he scored, he scored his hat-trick in the Europa League a few weeks ago. And what we desperately need more than anything now is goal-scoring midfielders. So just, I, doesn't, I don't care how he gets them, I don't care how scrappy they are, if he just keeps scoring a goal every couple of games, I'm very happy. And that places his um, in midfield. But, and then we've had the debate about Jorginho and Kante. Kante was quite poor as well. But um, like, I think the players just need to step up and you know, they're not doing it. And, you know, 70% possession is great if you can, you know, make chances and stuff, but we can't. And there's no way that we're going to be able to challenge for the title. And like, at the moment, we're challenging for the Champions League spots with Arsenal, uh, only four goals behind us and goal difference on the same points. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried, but there are definite signs that need to be improved. And I think January might be quite important for us. I would not be surprised if a striker comes in in January. I don't even care who it is, but just someone to replace. Grant Holt. Grant, honestly, like if we sign Glenn Murray, great. Um, <laughs> just someone to score some goals, please. Right, I'll move on from ranting about Chelsea. Uh, uh, right, if we move to the other end of the table now, uh, Fulham, who are still bottom, but um, after since Ranieri's come in, you know, they're actually getting results. They're not just losing every match. Uh, a one-all draw against Leicester, admittedly not great, but uh, Ranieri against his, his old club, his title-winning side. Um, a good result for Fulham? Yeah, they took the lead, though, which is... Pro- that's what will annoy Fulham fans and Ranieri most likely the most, because they took the lead against Leicester and, and looked decent, and then James Madison equalised, and, and then that's pretty much how the game ended. Nothing sort of petered out into a one-all draw, but they'll probably be buoyed by the fact that Burnley didn't hold on against Liverpool and Southampton lost as well. So, yeah, they're bottom of the table, but it's just on goal difference now. And and Ranieri seems to have tightened that up a little bit. Um, So, yeah, a good point. Every point is a point towards safety, I'd imagine. I'm just saying the most generic. (laughs) It's It's like football cliches. Every point is a point closer to 40 points. But... That's one thing that I know Ryan's not on the pod this evening, but he mentioned a few weeks ago that he thinks that this is the season that most likely you won't have to get to 40 points to be safe. It's just looking so poor at the bottom and Southampton have a new manager. He was in the stands against Spurs. They lost 3-1. As I said, Burnley couldn't seem to hold on and, and they've looked a shadow of the team that they were last season, but yeah, for Fulham, I think the main concern is not conceding goals and they seem to have tightened up for now. It's, it's only been a couple of games since Ranieri's come in. 
Yeah, I mean, it is very, very close down the bottom. There's only, you know, a win separating a 15th from 20th. Uh, Newcastle are only a point above that as well. So, you know, the bottom seven are quite tight, tightly knit together. Um, I'll ask you very quickly, have your opinions changed about who's going to get relegated this season? Um, I'll be honest, I can't remember who I said in the very first episode of the season. I think I said... uh... Huddersfield to go down. I think I said Southampton, and then I might have said Cardiff. Cardiff actually look kind of decent at the moment. They seem to be playing some decent football. I still think Southampton might go down, but then again, new manager, I don't really know. So I'll I'll leave my guesses to how they were at the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think this could be quite an exciting. I mean, we're a long time away, but I think it could be quite an exciting into the season with so many clubs sort of. You know, maybe having going through massive patches of underperforming. So, like Cardiff and Fulham, both really underperformed at the start. Both now seem to be doing a little bit better. Burnley, who we all thought were going to do maybe quite well, are doing. Have now gone through an awful patch and haven't won in a while. They're in nineteenth. Uh, Huddersfield, you know, he said they seem to grind out results last year, just failing to do that uh, as well. And then Southampton playing so so poorly, but. I get, it could be quite interesting, you know, and it could genuinely come. I really hope there are some big sort of uh, big matches towards the end where it's like Southampton, Fulham and Burnley, Huddersfield that could, you know, produce some genuinely great football and some really, really exciting moments. Because normally, obviously, everyone's focused on the top of the table. Uh, not last mm. year, because City won it in about February. But um, <laughs> uh, to be honest, City won it in October last year. Um, but, you know, it could genuinely make some really, really interesting matches that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about so you know I'm, I'm not hoping that all the teams do really badly still but I'm sort of still <laughs> hoping that they all keep going through patches of the form and then patches of the form so it stays really really close um, you know, I genuinely like to see a really tight relegation battle and not just the team at the bottom being absolutely shite and getting dominated every week and then just mm. getting relegated um, This weekend might be one of those games, Cardiff take on Southampton so that'll be a a relegation-ish battle, I guess, because Cardiff are at home. So if Cardiff can win that, then they'll be up to 14 points. They'll move away from that bottom three if results go their way. And funnily enough, I was doing doing a little bit of research today on Cardiff. Do you know, do you know who has the most assists for the Cardiff team? Uh, what, this current Cardiff team? This current Cardiff team. Do you know who has the most assists. And if, and if you don't know the Cardiff team that well, you can just name me a position on the pitch if you want. I mean, it would be quite funny to say goalkeeper because I wouldn't put it past them <laughs> that much, to be honest. Um, oh, I don't know. I'm tempted to go with Gunnarsson. Uh, not a bad shout. Not a bad shout at all. Um, it, it's actually Sean Morrison, the captain and centre-back. Centre-back? Yeah. yeah. If you look at a lot of the goals Cardiff score, I, and they, I'm not at all uh, saying this is a bad thing. They are very, very good at that cross-field ball uh, in free kicks, straight onto the head of Sean Morrison, who nine times out of ten will win it in the air and just flick it onto someone. Pretty sure it happened against Chelsea earlier in the season when Sol Bamba scored, and, and it seems to work for them. So against the Southampton side, who maybe aren't up for that physical fight, who knows? Could yeah. be a couple of goals. Could be a couple of goals. Maybe. Well, here's <coughs> to an exciting relegation battle in the coming months. Uh, now we're going to move on. Uh, Ballon d'Or happened uh, recently, and it did indeed. The, the winner not being Ronaldo or Messi for the first time in what six years? 
since 2006. 2006? 12 years. 12 years. The, the first time Real de Messi hasn't won it in 12 years, the previous being Kaká. Uh, mm. Luka Modric has won. Uh, first of all, like, deserved winner? Question mark? Yeah, question mark. Sorry, I, I got my stats wrong. It's actually 10 years. Not 10 years. Uh, 2006 was the last time Messi wasn't in the top three. Okay. Um, which is which is my bad. But um, I, you know what? Really, it's a really weird question because if you look at it over the World Cup, you'd think, yeah, definitely, he's been a really good player. And if you look at it over the last few years, you think, yeah, deservedly, deservedly he's been a really good player for, for Real Madrid. He's really made a midfield tick. But when you actually look at his stats, and I'm going to compare him to Messi because Messi was fifth in this voting process. So over last season stats alone, if you look at just their league form, 26 matches for Luka Modric, one goal and six assists. Now, granted, he's not the, the goal-scoring midfielder, but when you talk about a player who makes a team tick, you'd assume he'd get more assists. Mm. Compare that to Lionel Messi. 36 games, so he played 10 games more, but he got 34 goals and 12 assists. Now, now in my opinion, the Ballon d'Or is the best player in the world. And if the best player in the world is someone who scores one goal and gets six assists compared to a man who gets 34 goals, 12 assists, and is probably one of the best football players of all time, then I, I, I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's enough in itself that Messi's fifth. Mm. Um, you're right. Like, I mean, Messi does to make that Barcelona team tick. There's no denying. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird mix. So, the, like, the top five was Modric followed by Ronaldo, Griezmann third, presumably from the World Cup result because he was then followed by Mbappe, and then Messi fifth. I mean, mm. surely that's not the way it should be. With, I mean, it doesn't matter who you think Ronaldo or Messi is the best in the world. But, like, to have Messi fifth, I don't think anyone can... I don't think anyone could argue that he's the fifth best player in the world. Um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to think that he's the fifth best player in the world. And there's two things. Either the Ballon d'Or is now changed from being the best player in the world to the player who needs to get recognised the most, um, mm. which isn't quite, you know, it just isn't really what it should be because Luka Modric was the runner-up in the World Cup and won the Champions League with Real Madrid and admittedly is a key part in both those teams. But, um, and, you know, he does reserve recognition for that. That's why he won the sort of uh, World Cup best player. But mm. to, put him, to put him top overall, you know, Messi and Ronaldo is just ridiculous. I, my, my gripe with, with the Ballon d'Or, and uh, it's great, it is just politics because a goalkeeper is never going to win it or a defender is never going to win it. And this is the first year that we've actually seen a forward not win it. So, yes, in a way, it's really good that a player who doesn't score tons of goals, and I know I'm contradicting myself when I say this, but it's good to see that a player who doesn't score tons of goals um, and, and wins games single-handedly is the player that's winning. But saying that, Wesley Schneider was probably and had a better season than Luka Modric had back in 2010 when he was nominated for the Ballon d'Or and didn't win it. So I think like on, on one side, it's great that it's not gone to another forward. 
but I feel like it, they've picked the wrong year for it to not go to a forward. Yeah, we've been <laughs> crying out for that for, for a very long time. There have been calls for it to just, you know, for other like midfielders, defenders and goalkeepers to get more input, but now is not the time. Yeah, I'm, fantastic season for Modric. Won a Champions League, got to the semi-final, uh, sorry, got to the runners-up of the World Cup, played very well, scored two goals in the tournament. Maybe we're being a bit too harsh on him, but even with how good Messi was, there's no way he's the fifth best player in the world. But maybe that just shows how much the World Cup really has an influence. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And uh, this always happens with FIFA, with the players' ratings, you know, that gets impacted by World Cup mm. and that tournament's won and stuff. And everyone has a go at that. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe it is about that. And maybe, maybe it is about recognising people's achievements and not just statistics on goals and assists and everything. So I don't know. It's very, I think it's very subjective and it's what you think the Ballon d'Or is, but you're right. Like the Ballon d'Or is chosen by uh, journalists, international journalists, national team coaches and captains. Um, And so it's always going to be like, it's not an independent body. If you've got national team coaches and captains in there. Uh, Mm. So, you know, it's not, it's not ever going to be an outright, winner if you if he's getting picked by people like that yeah I, it it's an interesting system because it's not what it's changed slightly because now you have two awards that you have the fifa pro awards and the ballon d'or which is is the french magazine so it, it's it's all a bit different one thing that i thought was quite funny neymar not in the top 10 uh, decided to just sack off the ceremony and he streamed cod on twitter <laughs> instead it's typical i mean he got he came 12th uh, and his decision to not go and boycott it and do uh, Call of Duty at the same time. It might be an ego thing, but, you know, it sort of shows that, like, it genuinely isn't that important. I think I don't even think Ronaldo was at the ceremony either. Um, and he came second. Like, it's just... I don't think they... And, I mean, Ronaldo's won it enough times for it to actually not be as important anymore. But I don't think the Ballon d'Or is genuinely that important now. I think this result genuinely may sort of corrupt it a little bit and just slowly see it simmer down into just one of the many other footballing awards that are less important. The award is just what happened at the World Cup and we'll vote those players in. Because if you look at if you look at the top 20, it is just 20 players who did really well at the World Cup. And then Mohamed Salah's in there because he had an amazing season for Liverpool. And and that's literally it. So the best goalkeeper on the list is Thibaut Courtois. Who has had an awful season for Real Madrid so far. Awful. Exactly. Has had an awful season for Real Madrid. Has been a very good goalkeeper, no doubt. Won the Golden Glove at the, the World Cup. But David De Gea isn't in that. And, and neither is Manuel Neuer. Granted, Neuer has been out. But I, I, it just confuses me. De Gea had a bad World Cup, isn't in the top 20 for the Ballon d'Or. Thibaut Courtois has a good World Cup, is in the top 20. So clearly the Ballon d'Or is, if there's an international tournament that year, we'll just pick those players. But then that doesn't even make sense because Lloris is joint 29th, who won the World Cup, had a, you know, a pretty decent spell with the uh, season with Tottenham. Thibaut Courtois didn't win the World Cup, came third, and had us had a shocking season with Madrid so far. And yet he's like 15 places above him. So even in that, it doesn't make sense. I, like I said at the beginning, I think there's a lot of politics yeah. in this. And I and I would not be surprised if the off-the-field antics of certain players 
costs them getting more votes. Yeah, hundred percent. And I don't really, I don't really want to go into that too deeply because I will only end up saying things that are probably misguided or misinformed. But I think it's so much more than a footballing award now. It, it is off the field. Yeah, as well. I think that's what loses his credibility. But the most important thing was Eden Hazard is in the top ten, and that's what counts. One thing before we move on from the Ballon d'Or, um, just the stupidity of Martin Solveig for asking the first ever winner of the Ballon d'Or feminine, Ada Hergerberg, if she could twerk no. on stage. I, I, I just felt like I had to mention it because of the absolute stupidity and, and fair play to Ada, who just said no and walked yeah. off. And, <laughs> and it's just, if that does not sum up the problem with just men and female sport, then I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what does because it is idiotic. Yeah, all credit to her for just walking off the stage. I think that might be a... I don't know whether the media was coming into that, being a French magazine and they wanted to see something funny and, you know, something they can make a headline out of. But, it, you know, there's no way that that should be going on. Uh, it should be, you know, she should be recognised well being the most recognised female player this year, because I don't want to say best, because I don't know if that's true or not, seeing as Modric won. But yeah, it's just disgusting. I mean, she has scored 120 league goals in 95 games for Leon, which is unbelievable. Um, but look, you know what? If, if Martin Solveig had asked her to twerk on stage and then asked Mbappe, who won the under-21s version, and then asked Modric, I would have no qualms. No. But the fact that he... He only asked the female winner if she could twerk. Just shows how, how backward some people still think. Yeah. Oh, dear. It's just so insensitive, isn't it? But there we are. So, I presume he will be out of a job uh, in the morning. Uh, let's move on from the Ballon d'Or. Now, it's December. Uh, we're coming up to the new year and the January transfer window. We're going to have some talk about the best sort of players stats-wise in Europe. Uh, it's a Europe's top five leagues, uh, as is everything, because uh, who knows what happens in Turkey? So, uh, the most league goals this season, I'll let you have a guess first, who scored the most goals in Europe's top five leagues? Oh, that's a great shout. Uh, most go- I'm going to go with uh, Edison Cavani. You would be wrong, although the top two are other PSG players. So Mbappe scored 12 and Neymar scored 11. The joint second was Christian Stuani for Girona with 11 as well. So just to mix it up a bit there. Um, we're going to turn this into a bit of a quiz because I think it might be quite funny. Uh, most league assists. <laughs> oh, I bloody hope it's Sean Morrison. <laughs> uh, most league assists. Um, uh, let's go with Neymar. You would be wrong. It's in fact Suso uh, for AC Milan. He's got eight. Uh, above Messi and Jaden Sancho for Dortmund, who's now dropped a place because it was Jaden Sancho earlier on. Um, now we get into the more interesting ones. Uh, most shots per game is Ronaldo followed by Messi and then Insigne for Napoli. Um, best passing accuracy. They have to play at least five games. Who do you think's at the top? They are quite close. I mean, in theory, it should be Jorginho, because the man uh, seems to be just known for his passing. But it's going to be like a centre-back who just passes the ball sideways. So I'm going to go Virgil van Dijk. That's a good guess. The, the number one is John Stones. Uh, oh, yeah, you've gone for the wrong, wrong. team. Um, that's... Which is 
fair. Stones is no good. Yeah, he does, you know, that's why he gets in the team alongside Laporte at City. Uh, joint first is Danny Caballos as well from Madrid. Uh, most aerial duels won. Now, I won't give you... You won't get the first one because it's a player for Leganes. Uh, Guido Carrillo uh, with 9.2. But see if you can guess the second and third. They're both from the Premier League. Aerial duels won. I'm going to go for the tallest player I can think of in the league, who's Yannick Vestergaard or Fellaini. <laughs> you would be wrong. Uh, it's Callum Patterson is second for Cardiff. God damn it, <laughs> Callum Patterson. Not Sean Morrison, unfortunately. Uh, oh, and then Patterson. third is Sam Vokes. Oh, that's fair. He scored a flipping header from the edge of the area. Of course it was him. Yeah, uh, and then finally round it off, most clean sheets. Number one is Allison. Uh, joined by Mendy from Rem, and then Edison is third as well. So uh, I wouldn't have expected Allison so to solid, have more than Edison, but solid zero points for me. No, you didn't get any right. <laughs> Admittedly, some of them were quite difficult. Um, I'm just loving the fact that Cardiff and Burnley are in the uh, one of the things for best players in Europe's top five leagues. Uh, do, do you know what annoys me most about that? is I have spent the entire day researching Cardiff for something I'm writing. And that's, that's definitely something I read today and just did not process. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that was a bit of fun. Um, uh, now, just to round the podcast off for today, uh, we're going to finish with talking points. Danny? So, my, my family is Sicilian. Um, so, I have some ties to football in Italy. Uh, I'm a Palermo fan as well as a Manchester United fan. I know you can all direct your hate to me on Twitter if you want. Um, but Palermo just got sold. Guess how much they got sold for? Uh, I've no idea. G- just guess a number. How, how much do you think a, a club would be a sold club like, A club like Palermo. So, you know, Italy, a good Prince. league. Uh, they've done fairly well recently, and they've had a load of brilliant players in the past. So I'd guess it's something like, I don't know, a couple of hundred million dollars. They got sold for uh, eight pound ninety. Eight pound ninety. At the current exchange rate, it's uh, ten euros. Yeah, they've been sold. Uh, so the chairman Zamparini, who is mental to say the least, uh, seventy-seven years old, he sold the club. It's gone to a London-based owner. They've gone uh, for yeah for ten euros. I could so, have bought them for that. They... Exactly. Uh, saying that. Uh, but Edmond do have about twenty-eight million pounds worth of debt, so oh. it's it's essentially ten euros to take on thirty million pounds <laughs> worth of debt. So m- maybe, not. oh dear, maybe not. Maybe yeah, probably not the best deal ever. But you know, who knows? Uh, if you look at the Palermo best <laughs> side, like of the players they've sold, it's ridiculous. Like it's Cavani, Dybala, and a ton of just brilliant, brilliant players that could have been such a great team. Oh, you, you don't have to remind me. I'm, I'm watching us struggle in Serie a bit. Well, we're top of Serie B. We're not struggling, but compared to those sort of players, what I'd give to even have Fabrizio Micoli back at the club. <laughs> no, you don't want to be a. Uh, you don't want to be Danny right now because he's a Man United fan and a Palermo fan. Um, hey, we're we're top of Serie B. I'll Serie take that. B. <laughs> um, now, my talking point. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's just one of the best things. Um, now, I do apologise for absolutely butchering this name, but for Juventud Unida de Gualguaychu, uh, I have no idea who they play for, or like what league, sorry, what league they're in, uh, but 
but they've just got a new goalkeeper. It is in fact a dog. Um, <laughs> the goal, the sort of the, the ball rolls towards the goal, and a dog. I don't know where the keeper is. He's like out in the middle of the pitch doing a noia, and the dog runs across the goal. It bounces off him and goes out for what is presumably a corner. Um, it's the <laughs> best thing. Go and watch. It's been all over Twitter as uh, usual. Um, the goalkeeper sort of kicks it at one of the opposing players. It bounces back, hits the dog, uh, and then yeah, and then goes out of play. So the dog's just saved from a goal. I don't know what sort of FIFA rules or whoever it is the governing body for whatever country it is. I don't know what they deem that to be. You know, do they like give them the goal because it was going in anyway? I've absolutely no idea. I. I, I think by the rules of the game, much like the Darren Bent beach ball incident, <laughs> it, it, it just has to carry on because that has been part... You can't just give a... I don't think there's penalty goals in, in football, so you, you can't just randomly give it as a goal. Uh, but the dog was in the way! Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I wanted to f- finish my talking points as well. Bit of a different one. The E-Premier League registration oh, has begun. I don't know if you've seen this. So... So in January, every single Premier League club uh, will offer players the opportunity to play for that club as their esports player on FIFA 19. So registration opened this month. You've got until January 5th to register, I believe, um, and then play a whole host of games to see if you can get through to the final amount of players. I think it's the final 16 players to try and, uh, to try and play for your club. So I've already registered for Manchester United. Are you are you going to give it a go? Register for definitely. Chelsea? I didn't even know it was going on, but I will do. I mean, I'll be shocking and probably you know be a detriment to the other people, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. So I I thought I'd give that a, a little shout because that's a, something a little bit different. Nice little electronic version <laughs> to end game time. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode uh, of Midweek Games. We are back on Wednesday with the roundup of all the Premier League games happening at the weekend. Uh, join whoever is on the episode then. Uh, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at GameTime underscore pod. And we're available on all podcasting sites, whether you're uh, a scroungy Apple person on Apple Podcasts or an Android asshole, you can follow us on Google Podcasts as well. Or on anchor.fm, where we're based. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. 